some of the guests with us this morning are thinking like, wow, that was the shortest sermon I ever heard. The service is only a half hour long. Nope. Here I am again. <laughs> Psalm 6. Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got Bibles under the chairs in front of you in some of those chairs. And if you're looking for Psalm 6 in that Bible, you can find it on page 473. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who are weak and need strength. To all who have sinned and need a Savior. To all who feel worthless this morning and wonder if God even cares. It's not by accident that I say those words to you many Sunday mornings as a way to welcome you into God's presence and share the friendship and acceptance of his people because we're all humans here. Because if we're brave enough to admit it, this is us. Weary, mourning, weak, sinning, sometimes feeling worthless. We've all been at least one of those. Maybe because we've failed this week. And it's not just that we've failed. it. We feel like, and maybe we even think that we are a failure. If we're honest with ourselves, if we could be honest with each other, all of us has very likely been in such a spot at one time or another. Maybe this morning. Maybe you feel like you're a failure. And if that's you this morning here, I'm sorry. I truly am. I've been slowly making my way through a book by a gifted counselor named Ed Welch. I've told you about it before. It's entitled, A Small Book About Why We Hide. Boy, we're good at hiding, aren't we? Putting masks on. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Fine. A small book about why we hide, how Jesus rescues us from insecurity, regret, failure, and shame. I'm reading it because I struggle with those four things. And I need, I need a gifted counselor in those areas in my life. At just about the halfway point of the book, he addresses failure. I hit it a few days ago. He says this, success in life depends on our learning how to fail well. Which actually makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're humans. We're imperfect. We're, we're going to fail. It's not a matter of if we're going to fail. We're going to fail. Probably today in some way. Welch, again. And our failures are not all of the same type. I failed the test 
I studied but I ended up with an F is one type of failure. I failed the test. I was alone on a business trip and assumed I could resist temptation, but the first thing I did was turn on the porn channel is a very different type of failure. The first reveals that we are fallible humans who make mistakes. The second violates the clear commands of God. The category of failure because we are human is one that all of us face. We are all in that category. And at times like these, we assume that everyone sees when we're, when we're in a place of failure, isn't this true? We assume that everybody sees us as a loser, like, like they know about it, like, it's, like we're wearing some kind of banner about the way that we failed. And so we, we think, they all know, they think I'm, everybody's talking about me. <laughs> everybody's talking about what a loser I am. And we become persuaded that we are losers. When you feel, fail, you feel like you don't belong, you're an outcast on display. And so the thing is, family, what are we going to do when that happens? When you come to this place of failure, what will we do when the consequences of our failure may bring attack from those who want to use it to their advantage, to maybe leverage our failure to bring us down, to get ahead at our expense, to make our lives miserable, to settle a score? Or more pointedly, what will we do when it seems that the consequences of our failure has brought the justified correction, discipline, and chastisement of our Heavenly Father who disciplines those whom He loves as a father disciplines his child? Or what if those two things actually converged? What if God used our enemies as the tool of his chastisement to correct and refine us in the same way that a father uses a spoon on his son? What will we do in a place like that? These are important questions, I think. These are questions just like law and order, stories ripped from our lives. Right? This is real. It's our reality. And I praise God for the Psalms because the Psalms do not ignore our humanity and our humanness and our reality. The Bible is filled with the experience, laments, and failures of humans like us. One of them is David. And he has given us a song. This is a song. Right? It's a song that was meant to be sung in the congregation to remind them things, to teach them things, and to guide them in the ways of God. It's been sung for thousands of years. It's here for us today through God's protection and care, by the power of his spirit, to help people like us who reside in the category of failure because we are human. Song six in the songbook. David is going to show us how to work our way from failure to acceptance. Okay, that's what he's going to show us. Because I don't know about you, but when I fail, I don't feel accepted. That's one of the implications that can happen. Here's what we're going to see, I think. The agony and anguish of failure, verses 1 to 3. Two arguments for acceptance after failure, verses 4 to 7. And acceptance achieved, verses 8 to 10. That's where we're going. That's your roadmap. It's on the service guide. If you got one on the way in, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, 
Your word tells us that a wise son or daughter listens to his father's discipline and pays attention so that we may gain understanding. Understands that discipline is discipling. And it's meant for our good from your loving hand. So open our eyes now to see how to deal with all of our failures. To see how they may actually be good for us because they teach us something. And Father, help us to make our way always back to you. Yes, and very amen. In Jesus' failure and shame-removing name. Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Yahweh, for I am weak. Heal me, Yahweh, for my bones are shaking. My whole being shaken with terror. And you, Yahweh, how long? I'm going to read that again. Because the danger is that you pass too quickly by the agony and anguish of David here. Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger. Yahweh, do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Yahweh, for I am weak. Heal me, Yahweh, for my bones are shaking. My, My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Yahweh, how long? David is in a bad spot here. I am weak, he says. The word was used commonly in the time of, of vegetation that has withered. It makes me think of all the walks and hikes that I've been on in the last week in this scorching July sun, right? You see, you see plants that haven't gotten enough water, haven't gotten enough nutrients, and they, they just kind of They're just kind of all shriveled up and brown. And and what do they look like? Lifeless. That's that's the word. That's what David is communicating. David is shrinking up in on himself in every way possible, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. David is in agony. My bones are shaking. He's in the agony of gripping and suffocating fear. The language here would be better translated even, I am terrified out of my mind. He is communicating a kind of fear that has worked its way all the way into his bones in a way that threatens to destroy him. Friends, David is in anguish. My whole being is shaken with terror. As if the agony of fear weren't enough, engulfing terror, gripping him all the way to his bones, it's worse. It's not just that his body is gripped and shaking. His whole being is shaking. We're studying this text as a staff this week and Pastor Jim was telling the story he had just brought his dog Luna to the vet and, and he was describing how like bringing her into the vet how she just started shaking and the vet, anybody had a pet and brought them to the vet 
I remember our dog Arwen like that. Just ter- like her leg would go, her, or her tail would go so far up between her legs it came out at her nose for pity's sake. Like it would just, right? Like you, just terrified. That's what he's saying. He's not just in my bones and my body. You're shaking my, my soul. I feel this in my soul. I'm shaken with terror, Yahweh. What has brought on this condition? How has David arrived here? There are a number of things that he says that lead me to believe that it is because of a failure on David's part. He speaks of the rebuke and discipline of his God and Father, and in the same breath, he pleads for grace and healing. Later, he reveals that it is his enemies and evildoers that are a cause of this agony and anguish. And all of this is a common formula and storyline in the Bible. God's people fail by sinning. They feel the rebuke and chastisement of Yahweh, often in the form of their enemies, as his rod of discipline, and they respond by crying out in agony and anguish, pleading for grace and healing. Do you see? And David is quite familiar with this storyline. And he now seems to be living it. And so he turns to Yahweh, who, who so often, Yahweh is viewed as both threat and hope. So often with his people. Do you, do you see it? How he turns to him. Four times in just three verses, David says his name. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. You see, I believe that David understands that his agony and his anguish do not reside merely at the level of his enemies. David believes that his God, as you just sang, is sovereign over all things. That he holds all things in his hands. That the God of the universe raises up kings and tears them down. And that his enemies can do nothing, absolutely nothing to harm him outside of the approval and plan of his God. He knows that Yahweh is above and behind any part of his life, good or agonizing. And so it is to Yahweh that he turns. I mean, where else can he go? I mean, really, where else can he go? Even as he feels absolutely overwhelmed at the threat of rebuke and anger, discipline and wrath of Yahweh, he is also holding on to hope, however slim it may feel, to the grace and healing character of his God. Have you ever felt like that? That God feels like both threat and hope? Do you feel like that this morning? as you sit among us. James Boyce, maybe you have done something wrong and you know it. You know God is disrupting your life because of your sin. Or, on the other hand, you may be overwhelmed by what is going on around you or is happening to you, that it is no fault of your own. You may be young and your parents are getting a divorce. This is traumatic. Everything you used to consider stable is falling apart and you think that somehow it's all your fault. What have I done to cause this? What can I do to make it right again? You want to say, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Heal me. Maybe you have suffered reversals at work 
in your job, in your business. Perhaps you even lost your job and you're at an age when it'll be difficult to find another one. God seems to be punishing you. But, but for what? You find yourself thinking, maybe I got out, of God, got out of God's will somehow. Maybe I wasn't reading my Bible enough. Maybe I wasn't a good enough worker. Maybe it was because I failed to do well. And there are dozens of maybes in a situation like that, which could be on you or not. And there are no easy responses to any of them. And you are saying, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me and heal me. Maybe your husband left you. Or maybe your wife. God, what are you doing to me? What have I done? Maybe everyone seems to be against you because of something that you had done. Yes, it was your fault, but there's no mercy anywhere. There's no grace, no compassion. They're out for blood no matter how hard you try and make things right. And you don't know whether God is punishing you for some sin or trying to develop character in you by the suffering that he's brought to you. Maybe it's both. And all you want is that God should hear you and relieve your agony and your anguish. That he would not rebuke you in his anger and discipline you in his wrath. That he would be gracious to you and heal you. That's what you're waiting for. More than anything, for grace and healing with him. Because that's what's more agonizing, isn't it? more anguish producing than any other suffering that you can possibly imagine that God is against you or is absent from you? I mean, what could be worse than that? What could be worse than the loss of relationship or friendship with God, your Father? I mean, how long God, how long will this last? And maybe that's the most excruciating thing of it all. Time. The waiting. The never-endingness of it. We have our calendars, right? We have figured out how long we can make it. I can do this a few more days, God. And then it just seems, his time frame seems to keep passing our deadlines. And we ask why. You see, family, David's how long is boldly asking God how long he's going to allow this to go on. I love the way Peterson renders it. Can't you see I'm black and blue? Beat up badly in bones and soul. God, how long is it going to take for you to let up? Or, why don't you intervene and give me relief? Why are you waiting? Why are you holding off? You say it's going to happen sooner or later. Why does it always feel like it's going to be later? Somewhere in the agony and the anguish, I wonder if David recalled the words of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 19, verse 22. Yahweh will wound. 
He will first hit and then heal. Then they will come back to Yahweh. And Yahweh will listen to their prayers and heal them, heal them from head to toe. I wonder if that's why in the waiting, David makes two arguments for acceptance after failure. Verse four, turn Yahweh, rescue me, save me because of your faithful love. For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? I I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch. Every night, my eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all of my enemies. You see, what David senses right now from his father is discipline. And, And we know what that is like as children, right? Like we've all been children. Yes, some of us still are in this room. Maybe regardless of your age. We, we know what it is like to feel the punishment and rod of a father because we've done something wrong. We've experienced a chill in the air because, because the relationship has been disrupted by our failure. And I don't know if you're like me, but when that happened between my dad and I, I wanted it over right quick. Instead of him turning from me in disappointment and disapproval and discipline, I wanted him turning back to me in full acceptance. Do you remember what that was like? As a little kid, teenager. See, David wants the same from his father, Yahweh. He desperately wants him to turn back to him in acceptance. Listen to him. Turn, Yahweh. Rescue me. Snatch me out of the trouble I'm in. Save me. Come to my assistance. Lend me your hand. Give me aid and relief. Accept me into your presence again. Enfold me in your embrace. And don't miss what David is doing here, you guys. Because even in the midst of his agony and anguish, in the middle of all of those intense emotions that he's feeling, I love this about David. David is still thinking. David is reasoning. David is arguing. Oh, Yahweh, my Father and my God, do this. Accept me back. Enfold me in your protective, delivering embrace based on who you are. You are love and you love. More than that, God, you made a covenant with us, your people. You have made vows and promises. Your love is anchored by and provides all at the same time your faithful commitment to your people. So don't do this because I somehow deserve it, God. Don't do it for that because I don't. Do it because you've made promises to do it. He's arguing. David wants God to accept him again. So that the long, dark night of his soul may be over. I mean, what son wouldn't want that from his father? I remember one of the first times that I punished my son, our oldest son. I was new at this. He'd gotten to the age where he could understand the discipline of the rod. I, I don't recall what he had done, but he had failed. He, he had broken God's law, and he had sinned against his father. And so I took Colton, and we sat at the edge of his bed. I explained to him, here's what you were supposed to do. Here's what you've done. 
And now here's the discipline that's coming to you. Wanted to make sure that he understood that. He was going to get some swats. And do you know how he looked? Scared. He was really scared. As I recall, he was even shaking a little bit. And after it was over, he was crying, sobbing. You know, I think, I mean, it was just horrible, right? Like, we know this. Is, like, I think it was a lot harder on me than it was on him. I was trying not to cry. But the, but the Lord says, the father who spares the rod hates his son and instead disciplines him diligently. And so for his good and my obedience, I disciplined my son. And do you know what he did even while he was still sobbing? He crawled up into my lap and he hugged me fiercely. And you know what I did back? I hugged him hard. Squished the stuffing right out of him. Why? Because I loved him. And what he had done hadn't changed my love for him one whit. I loved him fiercely with a love that would never die. And he was still my son, fully known in his disobedience and fully loved and fully accepted back into my presence, back into my protective arms. And this is what David is arguing. Be gracious to me, heal me, turn back to me, rescue me, save me, let me back into your embrace because of your steadfast love. And do this, Father, because there's no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? And now we see how truly bad it is for David. David believes that he may die that his enemies may have such an overwhelming victory over him directly or due to his agony, anguish, despair, and withering in every way that he'll just shrink up and die. And so he argues, <laughs> what? what good would that do you, God? You see, David understands that a fundamental, might it be the most fundamental that a fundamental aspect of being human, the main aim of existence, is to glorify, honor, and praise, and worship God. And how instructive is this to us this morning, friends? Our gathering isn't optional. Our praise shouldn't exist only when it is convenient. Our corporate worship doesn't take place to satisfy some religious guideline or pastoral desire. Our attendance shouldn't be driven by rote habit or worse, out of guilt. We are here to worship God. Our worship and our praise remembers God, verse 5. It preserves in the memory of the worshipers the acts of Yahweh. And so David gently questions Yahweh. Do you want that lost, Yahweh? Do you want one less voice remembering and declaring the greatness of who you are? If you let me sink under the torrent of my agony at the hands of my enemies in your discipline, I will die and my voice will be silent. Further, who can thank you in Sheol? 
As he Shaol in the time of David was this place of, of darkness and emptiness and separation. It, it was the pit, the netherworld and the underworld. It was a place of silence from which no one was heard and no one returned. And if David were to go there, his voice would be silence and praise would end. How could you want that lost, God? Is the argument David makes. Which is why this 75 minutes just one time a week, it's just so vital. It's so vital. It's why I get on my knees every Sunday morning and I plead with God that you would not be coming because you feel guilty or because it's what you've always done, but because you want to praise God. Because you want to hear from God. Because you want to connect with your family to do that. Don't rob us of your voice on a Sunday morning. Don't rob him of praise. You know, when I first sat down, I was, I was writing right here, typing on the laptop, and I thought there were two arguments for acceptance from David. That's what it says in the outline, but there's not. There's three. It wasn't until this point right here in the writing that I saw the third in verses six and seven. And it is this. David's misery is meant to arouse God's mercy. I am weary from my groaning. With my tears I dampen my bed and I drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. In other words, Yahweh, I am so tired of all of this. So tired. I am crying so much, it's like my bed is swimming away from me in the middle of the night. When I get up and move to the couch in the fireplace room, it's no different. The flood of my tears just dissolves it. Just look into my eyes, God. My, my sockets are like black holes, dark and swollen from grief-induced sobbing. They, they don't look like the vibrant eyes of a young, happy child of the king. The constant torrent of attack from my enemies has aged me. I, I look old. My, my eyes show it. It's like the light has gone out in them and there's nothing left. Dear God. I can remember a, a morning a number of weeks ago. I had experienced a difficult night. and You ever had one of those nights where you just had really bad dreams? My mind was just like filled with all of these accusers, tormentors, reminding me of my shortcomings, pointing out where I had missed the mark. I, I, I couldn't tell you for the life of me what the dreams exactly were, but I knew how I felt as a result of them. The feelings stuck with me. The, the images seemed so true and so real. Isn't it remarkable, you guys, how real something can feel at 1 a.m.? Like the darkness, how dark and real it can feel. And the words that come against you in the middle of the night I think as a result of principalities and powers in spiritual realms that come against us, 
Anyway, I remember finally crawling out of bed at about 4 a.m. and grabbing my Bible and going down into the fireplace room because I needed to hear from God. I was desperate to talk to my father. And as I knelt on the ground and placed my forehead on the carpet, I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of failure. Have you ever seen those gravity blankets? Like they're really heavy? Think of one of those like times 10 and it just was laid on me. Just suffocating. I got so afraid. Because there was, there was truth in the accusations. It's always at least the kernel because we're just imperfect, right? And it just felt so overwhelming and suffocating and real. And it wasn't just that I had failed. I was a failure. And I felt utterly alone and abandoned by God. And I felt that it should be so. I felt like I deserved it. Shouldn't he abandon me? Why shouldn't he? I am a screw-up. I am a failure. I have sinned. I mean, why shouldn't I pay for my failure? Why shouldn't I feel this way? Don't I deserve wrath and anger? And I sobbed. And I sobbed. I curled up in the fetal position like a little kid. I'm not sure how long I was there, but it was a while. And when I arose, you know what I was? Exhausted. So tired. I was weary from my groaning. And I believe, you guys, I believe that Yahweh for David and for me was there for every moment of that terrifying fear and suffocating shame and overwhelming sense of failure. I believe that he counted every tear, every sob, that he noted every shaking of my body. And did you know that in another place in the Psalms that it actually tells us that God keeps track of every toss and turn through sleepless nights, that every tear is entered in a ledger and every ache is written in his book, Psalm 56, 8? Is this not why when the Father sent the Son, who was the exact image of the Father, isn't this why Jesus was constantly going around because of his compassion and because of the brokenness of the vulnerable people around him to save and rescue anybody he could get his hands on? Isn't that why he was that way? And David knows this. He banks on this. And so he argues by declaring his misery to rouse God's mercy. He argues for acceptance based on God's covenantal love. He argues for acceptance based on ongoing worship and praise and thanksgiving, not being silenced. And do you know what happened? Look at verse 8. His acceptance is achieved. Depart from me, all evildoers, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea for help, and Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. What confidence! 
<laughs> what joy! What hope! Enemies had been overwhelming, and now his enemies depart. David had felt shame from his failure, and now his enemies are ashamed. He had shaken with terror, body, and soul. And now his enemies, shaking with terror. Yahweh had turned from David, but now his enemies turned back. He was waiting, wondering how long, and now his enemies suddenly disgraced. Wow! Okay, that's like really cool. Are you guys excited about that? Okay, just checking. And there's one single act that has made all of this possible. David's acceptance by Yahweh has been achieved. And after appearing only once in verses 4 to 7, Yahweh's name now appears thrice in verses 8 to 9. Yahweh has heard the sound of David's weeping, which means, family, he hears your weeping too. Yahweh has heard David's plea for help, which means he hears your plea for help too. Yahweh has accepted David's prayer, which means he will accept your prayer too. But there is more here. Do you see it? It isn't just that Yahweh accepts the weeping pleas and prayers of David. Yahweh accepts David, which means Yahweh will accept you too. And do you know why I'm so confident of that? Because the Bible tells me so. And it told you too. When Tim read Isaiah to you at the very beginning of the service. You see, friends, Jesus was attacked by his enemies. Jesus was overwhelmed by terrifying realities and failures and sins. But they weren't his. They were ours. You see, Jesus himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities and punishment, discipline for our peace was not on us, but on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Amen? Did you see, did you see that? The, the rebuke in his anger, the discipline in his wrath, the punishment that we deserved, well, Jesus took it. And in exchange, we receive peace and are healed by his wounds. Hallelujah, what a Savior is this Jesus. Worship team, would you come up? And Jesus did this. Here's that, here's that personal approach again. Jesus did that because he was moved by compassion for you. Not the, not the vagueness of humanity, but you. You. If, you. if you all had a mirror right now, I'd ask you to hold it up and look at it and say, me. <laughs> Listen to Ed Welch again as we close. Jesus will have compassion. Listen to this. Jesus will have compassion when you are disappointed or crushed by failure. When you fail, you feel like you don't belong, like you're an outcast on display. And all of that is on Jesus' heart. 
He understands from his own experience. He was treated as the failed rabbi, accused. At the end, the entire world turned away. Even his father turned his face away. And there is no greater failure than to be crucified. The people believed that God himself had rejected Jesus and pronounced him a failed representative. We regard him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And true success for us occurs when we turn to Jesus rather than when we turn inward like me curled up in the fetal position on the floor. Only hearing my own voice in my head with its accusations and constant inner murmur of self-reproach. This remains among the most important responses that you can have, family, and the most difficult. Listen to me. You were made to lean hard on Jesus. And the amazing thing about failure is that God uses it to push you there. Don't turn away from him. Turn to him. And this isn't easy, is it? It's not easy. Our failures... (laughs) Our failures are a reminder that we're still humans getting the knack of being humble and needing Jesus. So can we do something? Can can we help each other with this, please? Please? The good news plus safety plus time. You don't have anything to fear here. No one seeking the Lord has absolutely anything to fear. And we have a lot of time for you in all of your failures. And we gotta help each other in this, y'all. Okay? We got to help each other, which means we got to be honest about our failures with somebody else, at least one other person. Share it so they can help you bring it and bring you to Jesus. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who have failed and need a savior to all who feel worthless because of it and wonder if God even cares, this church opens wide her arms with a welcome for you from Jesus Christ. He is the ally of his enemies. He is the defender of the guilty. He is the justifier of the inexcusable. And do you know what else he is? He's a friend of sinners. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I love you guys.